Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you, as always, for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to take a brief moment to cover some housekeeping items first. Firstly, I'd like to apologize for this episode being a day late. I just graduated on the 7th, which took up most of my day, and therefore I was unable to record, edit, and upload the episode on time. Secondly, I'm pleased to announce that I will be uploading the podcast to YouTube. The videos that I post there will be the same as the ones that I post elsewhere in terms of audio content, the only difference being that there will be a minimal visual element, seeing as how I'm not really competent enough in that regard to pull off anything more complex. The plan is to upload the entire backlog of episodes as I finish converting them to an MP4 format, and then, once that has been completed, I will begin posting new episodes of the podcast there as they come out according to the usual bi-weekly schedule. Anyway, if that interests you, be sure to check out the YouTube channel, the link will be in this episode's description. Without further ado, let's begin this week's episode. In the last part of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we covered the brief rule of General Pavlo Skoropadsky as hetman of Ukraine. Skoropadsky was a wealthy landowner and a prominent officer within the Tsarist army who was elected by a group of other wealthy landowners to become the leader of a new Ukrainian government that was intended to replace the Central Rada. This was done at the behest of the Central Powers, who had lost patience with the Rada and its socialist policies, and wanted to maneuver into power a new government that it could more easily cooperate with. The Hetman only enjoyed the support of the propertied classes of Ukraine, and he was massively unpopular with the masses of peasants, who saw him as a traitor to the Ukrainian national movement. Despite attempts to win back popular support by supporting initiatives to, for instance, Ukrainize the education system, or to organize an independent Ukrainian army, the Hetman's government was hampered by popular revolts in the countryside. For the entirety of its existence, the Hetmanate was entirely reliant on the military support of the Central Powers. Therefore, when the Central Powers collapsed in the autumn of 1918, the Hetman found himself in rather dire straits. Backed into a corner, Hetman Skoropadsky felt he had little choice but to court the favor of the Entente Powers, by announcing his intention to reunify Ukraine with Russia. This declaration did not result in diplomatic recognition from the Entente, rather it only served to prompt the left-wing Ukrainian nationalist elements to openly revolt. A new government was formed, called the Directorate, to head the newly revived Ukrainian People's Republic. Social Democratic leader Simon Petlura, acting as the supreme commander of the Ukrainian military, sounded the call to rebellion on December 14, 1918. In the face of a massive popular uprising, and with the Germans having begun to evacuate the country, Skoropadsky realized that all was lost. He donned a German officer's uniform and fled to Berlin via train. While the conclusion of the First World War resulted directly in the overthrow of the Hetman in eastern Ukraine, meanwhile in western Ukraine, that is to say the portion of Ukrainian territory that fell under Austro-Hungarian jurisdiction, the collapse of the dual monarchy provided the Ukrainian nationalists there with a similar opportunity to make a bid for independence. For the most part, the Austro-Hungarian Empire's sizable Ukrainian population, which, according to the Empire's final census conducted in 1910, numbered a little under 4 million, supported the dual monarchy's war effort against Russia. Most Ukrainian nationalists believed that the victory of the Central Powers would result in the independence of eastern Ukraine, and, in western Ukraine, it would result in the creation of a separate Ukrainian crown land within the Empire. However, many Ukrainians turned against the dual monarchy when Vienna announced, in July 1918, that there were absolutely no plans to grant the Ukrainians self-government. 
Later that year, Austrian Emperor Charles I made a last-ditch effort to secure the loyalty of the empire's minority nationalities, in the hopes that this would save Austria-Hungary from imminent collapse. On October 16th, the emperor promulgated a manifesto, proclaiming his intentions to reorganize the empire into a federal state. Two days later, a Congress of Ukrainian deputies of the Austro-Hungarian Parliament, along with other prominent Ukrainian political leaders, assembled in the town of Lviv. This group established a new organization known as the Ukrainian National Council. The council proclaimed the creation of a new state, encompassing all the Ukrainian territories of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that is to say, both Transcarpathia and Bukovina, in addition to Eastern Galicia. The council immediately entered into negotiations with the government in Vienna to determine the status of this new Ukrainian state within the federalized Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Ukrainians were well aware, however, that the Poles, who made up the majority in the western half of Galicia, and who constituted a plurality in the cities of eastern Galicia, would never consent to the creation of a Ukrainian state. While negotiations between the Ukrainian National Council and the Austro-Hungarian authorities were still ongoing, on the night of October 31st, a group of a thousand Ukrainian soldiers of the Austro-Hungarian army staged a coup in Lviv. They seized the city's major buildings and ran up the yellow and blue flag of Ukraine on the city hall. This action presented all parties with a fait accompli. The next morning, the Ukrainian National Council convened once more and proclaimed the outright independence of the Western Ukrainian People's Republic. The proclamation of the new republic was accompanied by a direct appeal to the Western Ukrainian people. Quote, the fate of the Ukrainian state is within your hands. You shall stand as an impregnable wall, and you shall repulse all inimical attempts upon the Ukrainian state. End quote. When compared to their counterparts in the East, the Western Ukrainians had far less trouble in creating a functional state apparatus and in maintaining order in their territory. This can be attributed, at least in part, to the Ukrainian social and political traditions they had been able to exercise under Austro-Hungarian rule. The Ukrainian National Council assumed control of all military units of Ukrainian nationality and directed them to keep the peace and to protect vital infrastructure. Historian Sergei Yakolchek attributes the success of the Western Ukrainian People's Republic largely to the fact that Western Ukrainian society had become united in the face of Polish hostility. Elections to the Ukrainian National Council resulted in a victory for the more moderate National Democrats, who were willing to cooperate with their more radical opposition. The Council then made provisions for a whole slate of basic civil and political rights for the country's minority populations. Such promises were not enough to placate the region's sizable Polish population, however. For context, Galicia was very much a multi-ethnic society. While Poles constituted an outright majority in the western half of the region, in the eastern half they made up only 25% of the overall population, while the Ukrainians made up 60%. However, as the Ukrainian people in the region very much remained an overwhelmingly rural population, Poles and Jews dominated the cities of eastern Galicia, including Lviv itself. In spite of the region's ethnic diversity, many Polish nationalists believed that the entire region, including the eastern half inhabited primarily by ethnic Ukrainians, was rightfully Polish territory. Almost immediately following the proclamation of the Republic, Lviv was overtaken by a wave of ethnic violence, as many of the city's Poles took up arms to fight against the forces of the new government. It was a brutal struggle, characterized by irregular urban warfare. Neighbors fought against neighbors, and atrocities were committed on both sides. By November 21st, the Poles had effectively pushed the Ukrainian forces out of the city and into the countryside, where ethnic Ukrainians predominated. 
Despite losing Lviv, the Western Ukrainian government maintained control over the remainder of eastern Galicia, establishing a functional administrative apparatus, enacting land reform, and rallying to their banner an army around 70,000 strong. Unlike the Directory, which was riven with internal division, the Western Ukrainian government was more or less united in their efforts to fight off Poland and maintain their independence. The tide of war shifted in April 1919, when a Polish army of 60,000 arrived in Galicia. This was the famous Blue Army, led by General Joseph Haller von Hollenberg. It had been formed of Polish volunteers and prisoners of war in France, and had served with distinction on the Western Front of the First World War. Now that the war in the West was over, the French authorized the Blue Army to redeploy in Eastern Europe. Ostensibly, their mission was to fight against the Bolsheviks, but in reality, General von Hallenberg utilized it to fight the Ukrainians in Galicia, whom, he offered his reassurances to the French government, were basically no better than Bolsheviks. The Galician army was entirely unprepared for the arrival of this new and formidable fighting force, and over the next few months they were pushed further and further eastwards, until July they were forced to cross the Zbruch River into eastern Ukraine, whereupon they joined the forces of the Directory. Meanwhile, in eastern Ukraine, the forces of the Directory entered Kiev on December 14th in the wake of the German withdrawal. Ukrainian independence under the Ukrainian People's Republic was proclaimed for a second time. But despite this fact, no attempt was made to reconstitute the Central Rada, nor was any invitation extended to its former president, Mikhail Khrushchevsky, to play any part in government. The new government, which was made of social democrats, believed that Khrushchevsky and the Social Revolutionary Party had largely been discredited due to their collaboration with the Germans prior to the Skoropadsky coup. The Directory wanted to ensure that it was seen as the sole legitimate government of the Ukrainian state. To this end, a week after retaking the capital, a lengthy declaration was issued which, among other things, which among other things recognized collective labor agreements, the right to strike, and the eight-hour workday. It reaffirmed that the Directory was the legitimate provisional government and at the same time proposed convening a new Congress of Workers, Soldiers, and Peasants Deputies for the purpose of determining the form that a new, more permanent government should take. The declaration ended with the following statement, quote, Standing firmly and unswervingly on the road to social reform, the Directory believes it is necessary to state explicitly that it will take the necessary steps to avoid all anarchic, disorganized, and unsystematic forms of this reconstruction. The Directory will regard itself as obliged to view these great tasks within the context of the socio-historical and international conditions prevailing in Ukraine at the present time, and also with respect to the best forms of social reform attained by the world, and especially by Western European toiling democracy." End quote. This declaration was authored by Volodymyr Venichenko, who at this time was acting as the Directory's president. The political program outlined by Venichenko in this declaration was considered by many of the more moderate Ukrainian social democrats to be eerily similar to Bolshevik rhetoric. This was no mistake, however. Venichenko had come to believe that the only way to defeat the Bolsheviks was to outflank them from the left, to present a political and social program that was so radical it would draw in a larger proportion of popular support. Perhaps the most powerful ideological adversary of the ultra-socialist Venichenko was the more nationalistically inclined Director of Military Affairs, Simone Petlura. This would be by no means the first time that these two revolutionary figures had clashed with one another. Both men had served under the Central Rada in some capacity. When Venichenko proposed attaching political commissars to army units to enforce discipline, Petlura accused him of attempting to institute Bolshevism into the armed forces. 
Conversely, when the revolt against the Hetmanate first began, Petlora issued his own universal in advance of the march on Kiev, an action that Vinichenko believed detracted from the revolutionary and programmatic character of the uprising, and that gave all glory to Petlora personally. Both Petlora and Vinichenko commanded considerable popular support, but at this time, neither was capable of outmaneuvering the other for outright control of the directory. The divide between Vinichenko and Petlora represented a larger schism within the Ukrainian national movement. Both major political parties in Ukraine, the Social Democrats and the Social Revolutionaries, had split between leftist and rightist factions. This factionalism was especially dangerous at a time when unity was required to face the looming threat of a renewed Soviet invasion. When the Central Powers invaded and occupied Ukraine at the behest of the Central Rada in early 1918, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks and their Russian counterparts were sent back across the border into Russia. In April 1918, around the same time that Skoropadsky was orchestrating his coup against the Central Rada, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks held a party conference in the Russian city of Taganarog, just across the border from Ukraine. Here, once more, the old debate was revived. What should the nature of the Ukrainian Communist Party be? and what form should its relation to the party in Moscow take? The Ukrainian Bolsheviks were once again divided between a Federalist faction, which desired the establishment of a separate Ukrainian Communist Party, which would cooperate with their Russian counterparts on a more or less equal basis, and the Centralists, who wished to see the full integration and subordination of the Ukrainian Communist Party to the Russian Communist Party. At the Taganrog Conference, the main clash between these two groups had to do with the wording over the official title that the party was to adopt. This time, the Federalists prevailed over the Centralists, and their proposed name, the Communist Party of Bolsheviks of the Ukraine, won out over the Centralist proposed title, Russian Communist Party of Bolsheviks in Ukraine. Given the contentious nature of the Taganrog Conference, the party agreed to hold a second party congress two months later, in Moscow. Here, the Centralists had the upper hand, as more Russians and their sympathizers joined the party hierarchy. Notably, Joseph Stalin was elected to the party's central committee. These developments resulted in the effective, but not official, subordination of the Ukrainian Communist Party to the Russian one. Around the time that this Second Party Congress was held, it was becoming increasingly clear to all observers that the central powers were bound to collapse shortly, and with them, the unpopular regime of Hetman Skoropadsky was bound to collapse as well. In Moscow, Preparations were being made to stage an uprising against the Hetmanate. Lenin ordered Vladimir Antonov of Sinko, the man who had overseen the last Soviet invasion of Ukraine, to prepare for another incursion. Ultimately, Antonov of Sinko could not act fast enough, as Petlura and the forces of the Directory retook Kiev in mid-December. In the brief period between the beginning of Directory's uprising and the declaration of a renewed state of war between Russia and Ukraine on January 16, 1919, Kiev and Moscow actually engaged in limited diplomacy. Both groups wished to see the hetman ousted from power, and Venichenko believed, or at least claimed, that Moscow had given him their reassurances of neutrality in the impending conflict between the Directory and the Hetmanate, on the grounds that the Directory provide for the legalization of the Communist Party in Ukraine. At first, the decision-makers in Moscow did not wish to immediately reopen hostilities on the Ukrainian front. The civil war within the former Russian Empire was in full swing, and the newly formed Workers' and Peasants' Red Army was stretched thin as it was. And so the anti-Hetmanate uprising began with all these factors in mind. The rapidity with which the Directory-led uprising managed to overthrow the Hetman and take over large swaths of the country was concerning to Russian observers, however. 
Outwardly, the Soviets claimed ideological justification for their latest attack on Ukraine. Commissar of Foreign Affairs Georgi Chichirin, in responding to the Ukrainian foreign minister, wrote the following missive, quote, The expression in your telegrams of your desire to find a peaceful settlement in this matter can apply only to the conflict between the Directory and the toiling masses of Ukraine, who strongly desire the introduction of Soviet order. This is the same struggle of the toiling people which is being waged for its complete liberation in Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and Belarus, against the governments of exploiters and oppressors, both native and foreign, and against their agents and servants. End quote. On a deeper level, this latest invasion of Ukraine was motivated by more practical concerns. There was a fear that the revived UNR would fall under the influence of the Entente powers. Petlura had already made some indications that he intended to orient his foreign policy in a more pro-Entente, specifically pro-French, direction. These fears were justified in mid-December 1918, when a contingent of French soldiers captured the critical Black Sea port city of Odessa. It was with this in mind that Soviet troops were once more ordered across the Ukrainian border in late December. In the midst of this atmosphere of internal division and external invasion, there was an impressive initiative for the unification of eastern and western Ukraine. Representatives of the Western Ukrainian People's Republic had been making overtures to their eastern brethren since the beginning of the anti-Hetmanate revolt. After some negotiations, the formal unification of the two entities was proclaimed on January 22, 1919, in Kyiv's historic St. Sophia Square. This was a joyful occasion, representing as it did a dream that had been held since the advent of Ukrainian national consciousness. The ceremony itself was preceded by a mass political rally, a church service, and a military parade. Officially, sovereignty was to reside in the Directory, but the People's Council of Western Ukraine was given the right to exercise authority in the territories which formerly belonged to the Western Ukrainian People's Republic, pending the convocation of a national assembly. This, as historian John Reshetar points out, made the Union, quote, "...more nominal than real." and enabled two different and at times contradictory external and internal policies to develop in Ukraine." End quote. For instance, the Western Ukrainians maintained much of their independent administrative structures they had managed to develop over the last couple of months, including their own diplomatic corps. Evidence of this divergence, at least in terms of foreign policy, can be seen in the Directory's refusal to go to war with Poland, which the Western Ukrainians had been in conflict with since the foundation of their republic. On the same day that Ukrainian unification was proclaimed, January 22nd, was also the first day of the Congress of Toilers, a sort of national assembly to which the Directory would cede its sovereign power. The Congress met under very inauspicious circumstances. The Red Army was quickly advancing through Ukraine, capturing city after city in eastern Ukraine and zeroing in on the capital. Amidst the backdrop of Soviet invasion, only half of the nearly 600 elected delegates managed to make it to the capital to attend the Congress. Among those who did manage to attend, the Social Democrats and Galicians made up the largest contingents, although they did not constitute an outright majority. If anything else, the Congress of Toilers demonstrated the ever-widening chasm that was growing between the left wing of the Ukrainian movement and the center, as represented by figures like Petlura. Most rightist elements within Ukrainian society, i.e. those who had supported the Hetmanate, were largely excluded from the proceedings. This did not stop the left wings of the Social Democratic and Social Revolutionary parties, as well as the Jewish Social Democratic Bund, from protesting the inclusion of the Galician delegates, whom they regarded as reactionary elements. These parties formed an informal coalition which called for peace with Russia and the immediate transfer of all power to the workers, peasants, and soldiers Soviets. 
these proposals were not amenable to the interests of the Galician and social democratic plurality, and divisions among the Congress's left wing enabled them to adopt a resolution which enabled the Directory to hold on to the reins of power until the convocation of another Congress of Toilers, which was to be held at an indeterminate date. The Congress was forced to adjourn shortly thereafter. On February 2nd, the Directory evacuated Kiev for the town of Venezia. The Red Army entered the city two days later. To understand why the Directory was defeated so swiftly, it is necessary to take a closer look at military developments in both Ukraine and Russia since the last bout of hostilities between the two. The collapse of the Imperial Russian Army in 1917 had enabled the revolution in Russia to meet with the degree of success that it had in the first place, but as the Germans had demonstrated during Operation Felschlag, the army in its current state was incapable of defending the Bolshevik regime from external threats. Therefore, once the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed, the Bolsheviks used the relative state of peace to build up a new fighting force capable of adapting to the harsh realities of modern warfare, while still adhering to socialist principles, the Workers' and Peasants' Red Army. Vladimir Lenin entrusted this monumental task to Leon Trotsky, who was named People's Commissar for Military and Naval Affairs in January 1918. Trotsky worked tirelessly to reform the army. He saw to it that military discipline was reintroduced, former Tsarist officers were brought on, and conscription was re-implemented. These, among other reforms implemented at Trotsky's insistence, had the effect of turning the newly formed Red Army into, quote, the single most effective fighting force of the Civil War, end quote. Meanwhile, on the Ukrainian side of things, the rapid success of the anti-Hetmanid uprising had caught everyone, including the Directory itself, by surprise. Aside from the core of the army, who were the Galician riflemen, the Directory had very little else to work with. It was necessary, therefore, to raise a large standing army in a relatively short period of time. The Directory naturally looked to Ukraine's largest demographic and the base of their support, the peasantry, to fill the ranks of this new army. The organization of the army was handled in a rather decentralized way, with Petlora and the Directory assigning funds to various local warlords, or Atamans, as they were called in the Ukrainian, and having said Atamans be responsible for the recruitment, provisioning, and command of their own soldiers. Underlying this approach to military organization was a hesitancy to enact military discipline, and a naive belief in the peasantry as being a selfless and inherently revolutionary force. As previously mentioned, when Venichenko proposed adjoining political commissars to the army to enforce some semblance of discipline, he was immediately accused by the other members of the Directory of attempting to quote-unquote Bolshevize the armed forces. As a result, it proved nearly impossible to organize and discipline the forces under these regional warlords. Contrary to the director's expectations, these peasant soldiers, more often than not, acted purely from self-interest, with their leaders, the Ottomans, being notoriously unreliable. Often, these Ottomans switched sides, defecting to the Reds, the Whites, or simply going rogue. These activities actively endangered the Directory's rule not only from a military perspective, but from a political one as well. Infamously, many of these peasant soldiers and their leaders harbored virulent anti-Semitic sentiments. Given traditionally hostile attitudes towards Jews, the tendency of Jewish people to oppose Ukrainian nationalism as such, and the complete lack of discipline and oversight in the army, and the general breakdown of public order that had been the state of affairs since 1917, the perfect conditions were created for mass violence against Ukraine's sizable Jewish minority. Much has been made of the appalling outburst of anti-Jewish violence in the period of the Civil War. As historian Laura Engelstein writes in her seminal study of the Russian Revolution and Civil War, Russia in Flames, quote, The peak of pogrom activity in Ukraine occurred in 1919, 
during the confrontation between the Red and White armies, and in the midst of widespread peasant rebellion. Each incident resulted in hundreds of deaths. People were murdered not only in their dwellings, but also pulled from trains, drowned on ships, and burned alive in synagogues. Women were raped, men's beards were yanked and snipped, eyes were gouged out with bayonets. After the attacks, many people perished from wounds, exposure, hunger, and disease. The vast majority of those counted as dead, excluding the many who eluded calculation, were men of working age. On the territory of Ukraine, according to one reliable account, directory troops tied to Petlora were responsible for over 40% of these incidents. Free agent partisan bands for 25%, the White Army under 20%, and the Red Army under 10%. End quote. Given the nature of this violence, exact death tolls are nearly impossible to calculate. Estimates range from 25,000 killed on the lower end to as many as 150,000. It would be a mistake to believe that anti-Semitic violence was a phenomenon that only began in 1919. These attacks drew on a long history of anti-Semitism in the former Russian Empire. Known as pogroms, massive riots aimed at the extermination of local Jewish populations have been unfortunately commonplace in the Russian Empire from the early 1880s. The reason why the majority of pogroms occurred in Ukrainian territory has to do with the fact that under the old regime, the empire's Jewish population had been restricted to what was known as the Pale of Settlement, an area comprising modern-day Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Ukraine. From the beginning, the Ukrainian national movement had a complicated relationship with the nascent country's large Jewish minority. When the Central Rada first emerged as a political entity, many politically active Jews were rather hesitant to throw in their lot with the nationalist project, although many did come around to support the Central Rada, with its espousal of rights for Ukraine's minorities as the best vehicle by which they might attain civil and political rights. Smaller outbursts of anti-Semitic violence occurred in late 1917 and early 1918, as public order began to break down. Both Vinichenko and Petlura made a point of condemning this violence, and the Central Rada approved the formation of Jewish self-defense militias. Despite the Central Rada's failure to stop aforementioned pogroms, many Jews stuck by the Central Rada right up until the Declaration of Independence in January 1918, as most Jews opposed separation from Russia. The return of the Central Rada soldiers to Kyiv in March 1918 saw many Ukrainian soldiers engage in acts of anti-Semitic violence, but, for the most part, the German occupation prevented further such incidents from occurring. It was when the Germans finally withdrew in late 1918 that the pogroms began in earnest. To quote Engelstein once again, quote, In December 1918 and January 1919, the Ottomans instructed their men to treat Jews as Bolsheviks, therefore as enemies. Plunder was taken for granted. Also rapes, beatings, murders, and ritualized humiliations. Abuses were encouraged by slogans such as Kill the Jews, also the Jewish children. Warnings of retribution were not merely rhetorical. Will you, Jewish rabble, still keep ruling over us? Occasionally a nationalist note was struck. Kill the Jews and save the Ukraine. End quote. The frequency and intensity of the anti-Semitic violence only increased as the Directory's military fortunes continued to wane. A report of the Red Cross in Kiev at this time stated, quote, The more they were defeated, the more Petlurist troops were forced to retreat the more violently they revenged themselves on the innocent Jewish population, whom they equated with the communists." End quote. The extent to which Simone Petlora is personally responsible for the anti-Semitic violence which was endemic in Ukraine at this time is, quite understandably, a matter of some controversy, 
especially as Ukrainian nationalists have been quite eager to rehabilitate his image in the post-Soviet period. Petlura's own attitude towards such attacks varied depending on the circumstances. In general, he condemned acts of violence against Jews, and ordered his field commanders, to the degree that he could, to restrain their soldiers from engaging in such acts. In very rare instances, he admitted that the soldiers under his nominal command had carried out pogroms. Still, on other occasions, he denied responsibility entirely, instead placing the blame on criminal elements within the army, or even on the Bolsheviks. Those inclined to defend the legacy of Petlora and the Directory have a tendency to repeat this third line of argumentation. As early as 1919, the Ukrainian delegate to the Paris Peace Conference blamed the pogroms on, quote, criminal Black Hundreds elements, the rogue actions of whom directly contradict the basis of our movement, end quote. A slightly more plausible argument, although one which still denies outright responsibility, was articulated by Julian Paczynski, the ambassador of the UNR to the United States, who claimed that the directory was too weak of a government to have effectively stop the pogroms. He claimed that the weakness of the government's foundational structure, compounded with the circumstances of war and revolution, was simply incapable of putting a stop to the violence, despite its desire to do so. Whether or not Petlura personally held anti-Semitic views is likewise a controversial matter. There's little evidence to suggest that this was, in fact, the case. He denounced the pogroms and, what's more, never resorted to using anti-Semitic rhetoric as a political ploy. However, the fact of the matter is that Petlora claimed the mantle of head of state, and therefore has been made to bear the responsibility of the actions carried out in the name of that state, and that he had not done enough to prevent. Whether or not Petlora was an anti-Semite, therefore, is immaterial. The issue was revived in 1926, several years after the end of the war, when the exiled Ukrainian leader was gunned down in the streets of Paris by a Jewish assassin named Solomon Schwartzbard. Schwartzbard promptly turned himself into the police with a note that stated, quote, I have killed Petlura to avenge the death of thousands of pogrom victims in the Ukraine who were massacred by Petlura's forces without taking any steps to prevent these massacres, End quote. In the subsequent trial, Schwartzbard revealed that no less than 15 members of his family had been killed in pogroms committed by forces pledging loyalty to the directory. The trial itself revolved more around the guilt of the deceased Petlora than that of his murderer, whose guilt was never actually in doubt. Schwartzbard was eventually acquitted of all charges. And it is with that digression that I will end the narrative for today. With Kiev once more in Bolshevik hands, Petlora and the Directory on the run, the forces of the Entente in Odessa, and the volunteer army of Anton Denikin posed to enter the region, the situation in Ukraine was growing more and more complicated by the day. But, you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out what happens next. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like to run by me, please feel free to email me at historiodramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach out to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can also be found in this episode's description. Also in this episode's description, you can find a link to the show's YouTube channel, that I mentioned at the top of the episode, where I will be uploading the backlog of podcast episodes over the next few weeks. Finally, if you wish to support the show in a more direct way, consider checking out the show's eBay store or Patreon page, or even leaving a positive review on whatever podcast listening platform that you prefer. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.